You're listening to The More the Merrier with Donna G. Very packed show today with Ryan Hines talking about Dream in High Park, then Dave Stevenson and Charday Hardy about Long Hot Punk Summer, a series of punk films that are screening at the Hot Docs Ted Rogers Cinema and also at Innes Town Hall. Then the Female Eye Film Festival with Leslie Ann Holes back at the Ted Rogers Hot Docs Cinema for that festival. Enjoy. You're listening to The More the Merrier with Donna G. And it's my pleasure to welcome Ryan G. Hines, theater performer, director, and cabaret artist. And uh, I've been wanting to interview Ryan for a long time now. Uh, there are performances that he's put on that have sold out that I couldn't get to. And, but I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. But this time I'm going to make... Uh, you, you can complain about uh, you can complain about that about that Donna, but I won't. I'm <laughs> of, of course not. So <laughs> welcome officially to the more the merrier CIUT. Thank you so much, so much. I've been listening to CIUT for many, many years now, so uh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for supporting us. Now, um, yeah, good for you for selling out some of, the, some of the performances. You know, Canadian actor getting work and paid. Hello. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very especially nice. In this, especially in this post-pandemic universe that we're in. As, as, as tough it is, as it's been for some of us actors to get back to work, we also acknowledge audiences coming back to theater and live performance uh, have a lot they're dealing with as well. So I honestly, it's just, we're all just kind of grateful that we all get to be in the same space together again. Yes. And uh, let's talk about dream in high park. And this time around it's uh, dream in high my- park, longstanding summer theater tradition here in, uh, in Toronto uh, Shakespeare. Uh, it's a Shakespeare play set in in High Park, produced by Canadian Stage. And this year, it's Midsummer Night's Dream: the collision of 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 the human world and the fairy world, and the lovers who uh, shouldn't be together but are, and then aren't, and then are figuring out who they're supposed to be with, and the fairies uh, causing a ruckus. And it's uh, spoiler alert: it all ends happily. It's a comedy. It's a fun light show, and it's just been a literal dream getting to work on it. We've all had such a, such an awesome time uh, uh, doing it. Now, it's, speaking of dream, it's been a dream of yours to perform in the park. So for, tell, tell me why. Yeah, well, for, for many years, and one of the, one of the uh, I would say actually the main reason it has been a dream of mine to do this is because when I was a teenager, uh, I started out as a volunteer at Dream in High Park and then graduated to uh, helping run the concessions booth at Dream and High Park. So I've got a lot of uh, summer memories of, of, of being a teenager and, and uh, watching the shows and, and thinking how amazing it would be if, if one day, someday, I could make the jump from the snack booth to the, <laughs> to the main stage. And here we are all these years later, and it's finally happened in a really interesting twist of fate as well. One of the actors who was actually on stage all those years ago when I was a volunteer and running the snack booth is now the director uh, of the show. And so it's been lovely getting to know him again. And because we have this personal context and he knows how how long it's uh, I've wanted to to uh, tread the high park boards. Um, 
it's it's just a, a really joyful experience. It's a real full circle uh, moment for me. Really, really, truly a dream come true. And we're talking about Jamie Robinson. The one and only Jamie Robinson. Yeah. All right. So uh, what was the audition process like for this? Well, uh, Jamie had us look at one of the scenes from the show and uh, uh, bring it in. Uh, I looked at it and I am not, I've never done Shakespeare before. I've done mostly uh, musical theater and, and contemporary theater. So I was really, really coming to it um, with, with, fresh, uh, with freshness. And uh, uh, at the audition, I said to Jamie, uh, I can make this funny. I definitely can make people laugh. But if you're looking for somebody who's really solid in their iambic, et cetera, uh, that's not really me. Fortunately, uh, the role that I'm cast in, it's, it's a lot of prose. So uh, I, get to, I get to kind of uh, discover my way with, the, uh, with it. Um, after the audition, uh, I, I made it to the callback stage. And at the callback, it was, it, was, uh, it was a group callback. There was a bunch of actors. And it was more playtime. Jamie took us through several versions of, of what the scene could look like, how we might interact with each other, what our, our ideas for the characters were. And the challenge, with, particularly with Midsummer Night's Dream, is in, uh, in these group scenes, especially in an audition context, everybody, everybody's trying to be the star of it. Everybody's trying to get a shot at making the director laugh and you know, getting, uh, getting uh, the bulk of the, of the fun stuff in the scene. But the character that I was reading for is a director. He's directing the play within the play. So I had an impulse to not kind of be at the center of the group, but be at the be at the sides and watching and framing things and and approaching it that way. And I think I, I think that may have helped uh, in terms of Jamie uh, seeing and seeing what I could uh, bring to the role as a first time, never read Shakespeare before uh, performer. You did the right thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now you said you are the director. You're um, you're one of the mechanicals. Uh, for yeah. people who can't remember their high school Shakespeare class, uh, tell us what that's about. Yeah. So in the play, there's uh, there's three groups of people. There's the fairies. There's the lovers, and there's the mechanicals. The mechanicals are these kind of uh, blue-collar, blue unionized workers in our in our production. Uh, they're not they're not royals. They're not uh, upper class uh, like the, like the, like the lovers are, and it it uh, falls upon them to uh, put together a play uh, to perform for for the royals. The royals and the lovers come together and. Uh, the rude mechanicals, as the script uh, calls them, they're not actors. They're not directors. They're not writers. They're these very, uh, very uh, not theater people trying to make theater. So the results are predictably hilarious when when these characters who who can't act try to take on these roles. And this, uh, my character, the director, is re really not a director and actually ends up casting, uh, casting himself in one of the roles. So now he's an actor, too, on top of not being an actor. <laughs> so it's a, it's a lot of fun with the mechanicals. Uh, we carry a lot of comedy uh, with the show. 
and uh, the the finale of the show is the uh, is the the play that the mechanicals have put together, and we're all really looking forward to doing it in front of an audience. We're all be- being very very silly, very very over the top, and and very very entertaining. Okay. And uh, sounds like you're having a good time with it as well. Yeah, it's just we all we all love each other. It's you know when you're working with uh, with with Shakespeare, that's always a fun time. Uh, Jamie's adaptation of the play is really really strong, and he actually said something that was really resonant for all of us. His goal with this wasn't to uh, um, it wasn't for us to go to Shakespeare. It was to pull Shakespeare towards us so even though it's an old play even though it's something that a lot of people are familiar with and understand in a certain way it really kind of reflects a contemporary sensibility certainly a a contemporary identity um and that's an exciting thing to to be a part of um as a as a queer and racialized performer it's always great when you when you get to approach the classics in this way but particularly in this production, um, the transition from the human world into the fairy world is kicked off by uh, three of us actors, all of whom are queer and all of whom are racialized. And so for us, it's this really, really wonderful comment of, of now we get to queer things up a little bit. Now we get to now we get to complicate the waters uh, of, of the of, of the human experience. Um, and that's a fun thing that we uh, we've been uh, playing with and exploring. Okay, that is different than you yeah, know the typical. You know, we used to you know the Duke and uh, Hermia and Lysander, and uh, I'm forgetting some of the other characters um, yeah. in in the play. But um, yeah, this new production seems very exciting. Yeah, it's it's not your grandmother's Shakespeare. Uh, nothing, and not that there's anything wrong with your grandmother Shakespeare, but the beautiful thing about theater is it's alive, it's it's immediate, and uh, it has to it has to ring with re- relevance. And I think our production does that. Our casting certainly does that. I kind of grew up in an era of of working in theater uh, when casts weren't that diverse and production teams weren't that diverse uh especially when i was younger and going to see some of the uh some of the bigger uh, shakespeare productions and shakespeare companies you really really didn't see a lot of non-white faces on stage and with this production it really truly reflects the the city that we live in. It reflects the society that we live in. It, it reflects right now. And so for me, that's such an exciting uh, version of, 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 of Shakespeare to live in and to play in and to get to perform. You know what? I think that's the original thought behind Shakespeare. He was a playwright uh, for the people. It's like people went and had their snacks and, you know, threw stuff at the stage if they didn't like them. And um, so I think this is uh, true to to Shakespeare's image of a dream in the park. And you're in a park. Absolutely. It's the most romantic date that uh, the city has to offer, if you ask me. It's, uh, 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 the tickets are, are affordable. Uh, there's a lot of pay-what-you-can tickets, even. 
And so it's just the best thing in the world to grab someone you adore, uh, pack up a picnic dinner, and come and enjoy a, a, a production of Midsummer Night's Dream under the stars with this fabulous class that really goes from recent theater school grads all the way to people with, with Stratford experience and Shaw experience. It's it's it it recasts Shakespeare, but doesn't lose any of the any of the rigor or the discipline. And that wonderful mix under the stars, all around the trees of Pie Park. It's a beautiful, beautiful area. It really just is an experience like no other. And it's amazing when you're watching the play, and it's it's still light, and then it becomes dark. And yep, it's just absolutely. a wonderful process and, you know, gathers everybody in. And uh, Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today. I know you're in rehearsal still. Uh, yeah. Preview start on the 20th. Uh, yeah. it, it opens officially on the 26th and runs till September 3rd. But people don't wait till absolutely. September 3rd. Don't yes, wait don't wait. Don't wait around. Then we then we run into the sellout thing, which we, uh, we yeah. talked about. Yeah, <laughs> and Donna, exactly. You, you you make sure uh, when you come to the show, please please let me know, and please please uh, ask uh, Canadian Stage to let me know you're around because I would love to say hi and see you in person. Okay, photo op. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, and I I love Shakespeare. I love a picnic, and I finally get to see you. Yes, <laughs> well, I've seen you before, but you know to see you in this because you know it. The dream that came true when you're in dream is it's just a fantastic story. So Ryan, yeah, thank right. you, thank you so much. You're welcome, Donna. See you real soon. Yes. The website for A Midsummer Night's Dream is canadianstage.com, canadianstage.com. Curated by the people, for the people. CIUT 89.5 FM is the sound of your city. You're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. This is Donna G, The More the Merrier. I've got Dave Stevenson, who is the owner of Emission Record Shop on Brunswick. And I've got Sade Hardy, who is VP of Film Acquisitions for Photon Films. And she's worked with Hot Docs to curate some of the films in the series. So, Dave, I'm actually going to start with you. Um, how did this, the thought of this series come about? Well, it's, it's a pretty cool story. Uh, my, my initial thought was my first year anniversary for the record shop was coming up. I wanted to do something special. I was thinking about screening some films and doing a poster show, a bunch of different things other than just concerts. And I thought of this film, Punk the Capital, that I've seen, that I loved, but it doesn't seem like it really has very good distribution. Most people haven't seen it yet. So I wanted to bring that to uh to toronto so people can see it and a friend of mine is a projectionist over at innis town hall uh so we put our minds together and and figured a way to show that and at the same time uh hot docs was working on something they approached me about sponsoring getting involved with that so there's kind of two separate series going on but working as friends as as colleagues uh, supporting each other so Sade, make your entrance so what had happened actually was, you know, I, yes, I work in film, but, you know, have been a punk for a long time. And so Hot Docs, the programmers at Hot Docs had reached out to me um, to help 
program the series and we were just kind of brainstorming like who are the best partners for in Toronto who can help kind of promote it and who would be great um, partner and so we ended up reaching out to yeah missions of course um, to help uh, promote the film and and sponsor it or this film series rather. What's your series at the hot dog cinema called Chardet? It's called Long uh, Hot Punk Summer, um, which, you know, is very fitting. Um, and the polystyrene documentary hasn't really had a theatrical, had much theatrical exposure in Toronto or in Canada. So it's fairly new documentary. So that's really exciting for us. And I will actually be hosting that screening um, in addition to, you know, kind of doing the intro. We've done a, Q, a pre-recorded Q&A with the director who happens to be polystyrene's daughter. So that will be really exciting to see on the big screen. So introduce polystyrene um, to my audience, please. So polystyrene um, is a punk icon. She was one of the first, you know, female um, kind of fronted punk bands. She sang for the X-Ray Specs. You know, I think in addition to kind of breaking the barriers of that, additionally, she was, you know, uh, a mixed race, uh, black Somali, half black Somali um, singer. So really she stood out. Um, she was a punk icon, like stylistically. Uh, she sang about very political things, but made these like very upbeat kind of like fun songs. So I think, you know, a lot of the the film focuses a lot on the pressures that she felt as X-Ray Specs kind of like started moving to that next level in the music industry. And it's really told from you know, this personal perspective from her daughter. So I think that's something that we don't often see you know, kind of that emotional thread through a lot of punk films. So this one, you know, is cinematic in, in a different way. So the next film on the list is Punk the Capital on July 27th. Dave, I believe that's yours. That's the uh, film that I was going to show as part of our first year anniversary events. It's a really cool one. There's been a bunch of Washington, D.C. punk documentaries. It's a very well-documented scene. Uh, very influential scene that, uh, you know, there's been other ones called salad days. There's positive force, but the more political uh, side of, of the scene there, there was also a Foo Fighters documentary where they talked a lot about, about DC for about an hour um, on, on, in a part of a six part series. There was the instrument, which was more of a nineties one. What makes this one stand out is um, this delves deeper into the early years, uh, you know, from 1976 and how that led into the DC hardcore scene that's so influential from 1981 on. And uh, these filmmakers are really passionate. They're, they're people that have been uncovering footage and posters and zines for a long time. I think they spent 10 years making the film. And a lot of the materials that they found are actually now in the Martin Luther King Jr. Library in DC, where they have a DC punk archive half of the half the materials they have there ended up being stuff that that the filmmakers of punk the capital had uncovered and uh donated there wow i did not yeah. know about this Dave. but the documentary or or the library you know, that the library had so much stuff yeah it's it's a really well uh it's a really influential scene there i think that's why they're are a bunch of different documentaries exploring different sides of it. And um, you, you can uh, online, you can go and check out all of the, a whole bunch of zines from DC that have been uh, scanned and put online for free. 
And if you're in the DC area, you can book some time. I think you, you can book two hour blocks to go and look through those materials. And a lot of them uh, for a sneak peek are actually in this film in, in Punk the Capital. And they also interview a lot of people that you haven't seen before. They get into some of the controversies that a lot of the other ones skip. The other ones show all the positive sides. This one shows a little bit more. It's a really cool documentary. Give me a hint of some of the negatives. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Uh, you know, some of it is, uh, you know, it's often looked upon as a very united uh, scene. But they, in this, they talk about how, you know, some of the bands were on the on the outside, were not really led into the inner circle. They talk a bit about um, how this scene, like like all the others, aren't f exempt from sexism. Um, we like to look at this as like a like a beacon of light, but they had their their document their their issues too, and there was some issues with sexism. They're not afraid to tackle it and talk about it in this film. Okay, and I'm sure racism as well. Racism as well. It, de it definitely occurred there, uh, but it, something that is really cool about uh, DC in particular is they seem to have a a wider represented wider representation of people of color than the other early punk scenes did. Why do you think that is? I think it might be just the makeup of DC. There's a lot of people there that you know were there for reasons like their parents were in the news or in the news industry or, uh, or politicians or worked for politicians. So I got a bunch of people, with different backgrounds who immediately got there and felt like outsiders. You know, if there's a conservative government or even a democratic government there, uh, people just don't identify that they move to a new town, maybe high school age and immediately feel like outsiders. They don't fit in. And you know, that probably had something to do with it. Okay. And that's happening on July the 27th at Innes Town Hall. Uh, Dave, you mentioned instrument. So um, were you responsible for getting that one? Or Charday, were you responsible for getting that one? So that's part of the hot dog series that David Knipe and I, David from Hot Dogs and I um, co-programmed. Um, that was one of his selections. And I think, you know, just further to everything Dave was saying about the DC scene, this kind of is just like another exploratory look at that scene. And it's a little bit later on kind of, you know, when some of the bands um, were kind of moving away from punk and, you know, it really focuses on Fugazi, which, as you know, a lot of people know, are members of Minor Threat. And so it's really the focus on, you know, Fugazi and that kind of like musicians um, trying to do something different than your typical what we know as punk. It's a little, you know, kind of the birth of guess of like kind of post punk. OK, um, can you delve a bit more into that? Because some of the audience will not know Fugazi. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm maybe maybe Dave, you're a better person to talk about Fugazi than I am. I'm not, you know, haven't really uh, delved that much into it. But, um, you know, I think that like when we know about what we know about Minor Threat is they're kind of straightforward, fast, hardcore. Um, and then Fugazi is like a departure from that. So Ian McKay, the lead singer of Minor Threat, 
are there other members of Minor Threat in Fugazi? It was just him and the, you know people from Rights of Spring and Embrace. Right. And, so it yeah. becomes a more it's more of an experimental band. They're um, you know playing with different sounds and kind of noise concepts and um, you know I think yeah that's kind of the best way to explain. Yeah, and I think what sets them apart too, not just musically, is uh, they were very fiercely independent and political band that really lived by their by their ideals more so than any other bands um you know they capped door prices they played in gyms rented halls only all ages shows they didn't make merchandise uh because they're like this is not a business this is our uh they famously turned down many major label offers where they were offered millions of dollars several times uh so they can continue having full creative control and doing things their own way on the guitar player's label, Discord Records. That's truly punk. <laughs> yeah, and they lived it. They never stopped. Okay. All right, so that's Instrument on October 4th at the... August, August 4th. Sorry, I'm sorry, August 4th. Thank you, Sharday, for that correction at uh, the Hot Doc Cinema on Bloor. And um, a band called Death... Uh, happening August 24th. Sharday, can you tell us about that one, please? Yeah, so I think out of all of the films, this is the most cinematic film. I think that, um, you know, when it came out, however many years ago now, like 10 years ago, you know, it was such an exciting story for a lot of people because a lot of people obviously didn't know who Death were. And the whole thing follows kind of this journey of, you know, this black rock and roll band from Detroit who were playing rock and roll at a time when everyone, if you were from Detroit and you were black, you were playing Motown. And so, you know, they tried to get on a lot of record labels and a lot of the record labels just said, no, we don't know what to do with you. And so they had these amazing recordings that they then just shelved, put in an attic, started collecting dust. And decades later, I think it's one of their sons actually finds these recordings and is like, wow, this is amazing. Um, it was a brother and a cousin, I believe, in the band. And yeah, they uncover this. And it's kind of like the, you know, predates what we knew as like punk, which had started in, you know, debatably in the UK or, or New York or whatever was happening. This is like 1971. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of like proto-punk. Is that the right term? Anyway, predates what we know as like punk history. And it is just, you know, this amazing band that is playing really fast and loud and music before there was even this like marketable term known as punk. Yeah, and 1971. It's, mm -hmm. And wow. it's really good, too. It's really good, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's It was unknown for decades and... You know, hearing it, you would swear this should have influenced plenty of bands that we know, but they didn't totally, we because were, nobody heard it. There was so nobody had heard it. Like it literally was sitting in an attic collecting dust. And, you know, you would think that, oh, this must have been the band that inspired Bad Brains. But like they hadn't even heard it. And there was other bands happening like Pure Hell from Philadelphia, which I think, you know, got a lot more recognition. Um, but even then, you know, a lot of people don't know about them either. But um, they were, you know, early influences of bands like Bad Brains. But yeah, no, literally nobody had ever heard these recordings before until like 2013 or something like that. Wow, something that like long. That. Yeah. yeah, that long. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. 
Um, yeah, because I'd heard of Bad Brains, but um, a band called Death, no. So um, you guys really uh, dug up some treasures here. Yeah, and whether you like punk or not, I think a band called Death is one that's such a cool story uh, that I think you can really enjoy this film, uh, whether or not the songs speak to you. Yeah, I think that like, yeah, just for moviegoers in general, I think it's just such a great film, you know, kind of the way I don't know if you ever saw like Searching for Sugarman, you know, um, that documentary that came out where it's just this like joy of finding really good undiscovered music. Mm -hmm. I think that like I often think about like how much more music is out there that is that amazing that we never will hear. Yeah. Um, I was uh, turned on by the Afropunk scene by uh, James Spooner's film Afropunk, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, delved into some of the bands, but also some of the kids uh, who felt like outsiders. If only they had known that a band called Death way preceded them. It's like how different things might have been. Um, so this is a good mix of films. So what are the prices for um, price of admission for these films. Uh, Charday, let's start with you. Oh, gosh, I don't have that on top of my head. I, you know, I think it's reasonable. I think all screenings are like, Dave, you would know the prices maybe better because you're selling, you can get tickets in store at emissions. But I think the tickets are about $15. Is yeah, that I think I think online for the hot docs uh, films, they're $15. Uh, or you can get physical tickets from... Uh, from my store emissions records for $14. Um, and we've got really good reserve seat tickets as well at the store. If you want to snap those up and uh, punk to capital is $10 um, and you can buy tickets for that uh, at record emissions.com. Also just say that um, it's at, if you're a hot docs member, it's free. And yes. if you're 25, you can get a membership uh, for free as well. So say that again. If you're if under you're, 25, you can get um, a free bronze membership for from Hot Docs. So, okay, good for people to know. Bring now, Dave, Dave, I'm curious about uh, your record shop, Emissions. Um, you said it's celebrating its first anniversary. That's right. I mean, our first anniversary was was technically June 1st uh, when we opened the doors. Um, I held off the celebrations a little bit. Uh, till the end of July, beginning of August, uh, because there was a band coming through. Our best-selling band, Homefront, is coming through at that time. So I wanted them to be part of the celebrations. We're also doing a poster and and a photography show. Some really cool photos of the very early days of punk in Toronto. Every band that played at at uh, the shock theater there's misfits in 1977 with there's very very few photos ever seen of them that far back and now they've sold out madison square gardens um and we're doing this film punk the capital uh july 27th so several things going on in that week so is emissions uh strictly punk uh i wouldn't quite say strictly but it's definitely our niche uh punk and hardcore is is where we center everything around we travel down a few branches that you can connect back to punk. Uh, but yeah, that's our central. It's our specialty. And uh, you know, I think we're the, uh, I think we're the, probably the biggest uh, widest selection of punk music 
in Canada. And are you vinyl or is it a mix of product? Oh, we're about 90% vinyl. We have tapes, we have CDs, we have eight tracks. What? Eight tracks? Yeah, some people some even people... find a machine to play an eight track. Oh, it's hard. Uh, you know, one, one guy that works at the shop uh, has a whole bunch of eight track players. And if he finds people are interested, he'll bring them in for them. Okay. Sade, <laughs> uh, you mentioned you were part of the uh, the punk scene. How were you involved? Um, well, you know, just started going to shows when I was 12 or 13. I think I booked my first show when I was 15. I worked for a number of punk festivals, um, Chaos and Chaos down in Austin, Texas for a few years. And then, you know, for eight years, I um, I co-ran a festival in Toronto called Not Dead Yet with uh, Greg Benedetto, who still books shows. Um, yeah, I guess that's how. <laughs> and how did you get turned on to punk at 12 years old? You know, I think, you know, Dave touched on it, like when he was talking about DC involvement, you know, I just, you know, I grew up in a way where I felt like an outsider. And, you know, I had an older cousin who really liked grunge music. And, you know, I just kind of found punk through just buying random CD compilations and, you know, just started going to shows from like a really young age and just really connected with the people there and the sense of community and the energy and kind of obviously like a lot of the chaotic aspects as well. Um, yeah. And I just never left. And I think one of the things that's like funny talking about, you know, these people in the DC scenes or whatever, the, the people who started punk is that, you know, they were all involved in punk for maybe five years of their lives. And Dave and I are pushing into multiple decades <laughs> at this point. Yeah. And so it's just kind of funny. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, so let's direct people to where they can um, buy tickets with a, a website. Dave, you start first. Yeah, so for Punk the Capital, uh, those are only available at recordshopemissions.com. Uh, for the hot doc screenings, Sharda, uh, uh, is it okay if I go with this one? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, you can go to hotdocs.ca. Um, and buy the tickets there. You can look under the programming for the long, hot punk summer section. They're $15 there. But like uh, Sade said, there's a way to get them for free if you're under 25 or, yeah. if you have a, or if you already have a membership. But you can also get all of the, the hot doc screenings tickets through the record shop too. We have physical tickets. They're $1 less. We're about three blocks away. You can even show up uh, on the day of the show on, on your way to the film and pick some up on the way there. So where are you located on Brunswick Avenue? I know it's 168, but for people, for people who need landmarks, what's next to you? Oh, we're right at the corner of Brunswick and Harvard. There's a, okay. there's a really great Indian roti shop right next door. We share a wall with them. We're across the street from the, the clay store. <laughs> all right i hope that's okay. what it's called <laughs> <laughs> i don't i don't know what it's called but i know the clay store <laughs> okay that's fantastic thank you both of you for for joining me to talk about these films and uh you've got me excited now um might uh 
go online and check out some of these video clips and hopefully try and make it to uh, to some of these films. Uh, it's it's a busy time of year for me, so I can't make promises, unfortunately. But audience, these films sound amazing. So go and represent uh, the more the merrier and say hi to Dave down at the record shop at the record shop and um, and Sade when she does the Q&A for polystyrene. I am a cliche. So, guys, thank you so much. Thank Thanks you for having us. Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think... Oh, bondage up yours! My mother was a punk rock icon. People often ask me if she was a good mum. It's hard to know what to say. One, two, three, four! Do you think you're a rebel in today's society? Yeah, I suppose I am a bit. <laughs> Polly had her own ideas about everything. She didn't follow trends. She was a woman of colour in an industry full of white middle-class men. Nobody else was singing what Polly was singing about. I fell in love with her. I fell in love with the music. I actually started singing because of her. I must have been about four years old when I realised something wasn't right. The constant cycle of elation and despair. I remember her coming off stage and crying her eyes out. It seemed like she'd been through some trauma and music was a way of dealing with that. Everything else reflects everything else. Like the music reflects what's happening around you. People started saying she'd gone mad, but she felt she was going through spiritual awakening. I'm like an actress. On stage, I'm one thing, and off stage, I'm something else. I just consider myself as a person first. I went through a period where I rejected everything that my mum cared about. But now I find solace in retracing her footsteps. The world is playing catch-up with polystyrene, not the other way around. You're listening to The More the Merrier with Donna G. And joining me now is Leslie Ann Coles. And she is the founder, executive director, and artistic director of the Female Eye Film Festival, which is celebrating its 21st year. Leslie Ann, welcome to The More the Merrier. Hi, thank you for having me. Female Eye Film Festival. Obviously, the festival exists because there is a need. What needs are you seeing? Well, you know, the festival was founded 20 some odd years ago. And at that time, I noticed as a filmmaker that there was a real lacking of female presence at the international film festivals. And that raised a question for me. And it was that women's films were not getting um, picked up. They weren't getting screened. And I think the issue was uh, that there was kind of an assumption that if a woman wrote and directed a film, that it was a chick flick and that it wasn't really uh. accessible. Yeah. So it was it was a it was a it, it's a systemic problem, like all issues pertaining to women. And that sort of launched the festival. And there's still um, we still haven't reached parity. And there's also the whole issue of inclusion and diversity and all of that, that we've been sort of unpacking and, and advocating for in the media arts for 
forever. <laughs> now, I noticed that there are two um, sort of, there's a script development and a script reading. The script development um, is in the industry side of the festival, which is great um, in terms of women getting their work seen. Mm -hmm. So that's an important part. But there's also a script reading which the public can attend for free. Mm -hmm. So um, can you tell me more about that so that more people can see the process of what um, film scripting goes through? Yeah, that's really great. Thank you for that. Um, yes, the script reading series is all day on Thursday and Friday at the Baha'i, at the Toronto Baha'i Center in the Great Hall. And actor mem actors come out and they read uh, characters they read we read about 20 to 30 pages of uh, each script um, that's been selected for this competitive program so we have I think nine Canadian screenplays a couple of pilots and then two features from the U.S. and there's industry in the room um, the general public the writers and it's a really interesting process because they get to hear the scripts read out loud. So the writers, you can sit them, see them sitting there with their notepads and their pens and they're like hearing their script. And, it, and it's part of it's a critical part of writing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really great program. It's free. Like I said, it's open to the public. You could pop in and pop out. And that's at the Baha'i at the Toronto Baha'i Center. The festival runs July 26th to 30th. I forgot to mm -hmm. mention that. Mm -hmm. Tickets are $20 or $120 for an all-access pass. The script reading is free. And the website is thefemaleifilmfestival.com. I uh, wanted to let the listeners know that as we do our discussion. Now, your opening night on July the 26th features The Nature of Healing and a short film called Oluna. It's a traditional opening ceremony featuring Canadian Indigenous documentaries? Yes, yes. So we're going to have a traditional um, opening ceremony. They'll probably be drumming and an elder present. And we're presenting a film by a debut filmmaker, Faith Leon Howe. She's Mohawk. Um, and this is a, this documentary captures kind of a painful part of Canadian history. Um, there was a school in the Mohawk Territory from 1831 to 1996. It was a residential school. A lot of terrible things happened there. Um, and some of the survivors uh, are part of this documentary. Um, the school was in Brantford, Ontario. And then we have a gala, at a feature gala, phenomenal uh, period dot drama from the UK called Stella by Jessica Fox at 8 p.m. Proceeds from the Indigenous film will be donated to the to the Mohawk Village uh, Memorial Park to give back and recognize whose land we're on and yeah. uh, the injustices that were done. The Female Eye Film Festival has a lot of shorts. Is the reason for that just to give more exposure to, to female filmmakers? Well, that is a great question. It is. And at the same time, you know, we receive thousands of films now every year and the majority of the films are shorts they're shorts or short documentaries feature films have always been scarce on the on the female identifying women directing um side of things and that is a real demonstration of the lack of of funding and 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 just generally parity in terms of where the money goes and who it goes mm -hmm. to to make feature films which are far more expensive right so yeah there is a lot of shorts, really great shorts. 
I want to move to a category called rights, women in sports, foreign shorts and Canadian documentaries. And it's uh, there's a special presentation called Category Woman, uh, directed by Phyllis Ellis. Can you tell our listeners about that, please? Yeah, this is a phenomenal uh, documentary. It's about the International Amateur Athletic Federation, now World Athletics, and how they ruled certain female athletes and and how they must medically alter their bodies to compete. So women from African countries, I'm going to try to give it to you in a synop- like a really tight kind of synopsis, but sometimes they have testosterone levels that are a little higher than North American athletes and uh, the things that they go through, the regulations, how they're discriminated against um, by the by the system, the sports, the national system. And it captures and chronicles some of the devastation to their bodies and their lives. And this documentary is really about standing up. It's really about women athletes standing up and saying no. And there's some things in the film that are really shocking, like how they would have women in, have parade naked in front of the um, Olympics jury. Like it's just outrageous historically what women athletes have had to go through. Um, it's it's quite like it would never happen today, but it chronicles sort of the history of women in sports, how women are perceived uh, now with, you know, levels, hormones and things like that. And, and it's a really important documentary. It's a story not told. It's not widely uh, publicized. And um, yeah, because male testosterone levels are not tested. No, not at all. No. Which, you know, I find interesting, but not surprising. Yeah, it's it's again the policing of uh, women. Of, of women. Yeah, and um, their bodies. Yeah, right. There's a f- film that I want to skip to right now, and I know I'm not necessarily going in order with this because of you know women's bodies. Uh, Cora Musso, Big Sister, which is part of the <clears throat> sexual rights and liberty section, mm-hmm. and it's a Canadian documentary. Yeah, so is Phyllis's film. We've had so many wonderful documentarians here in Canada. So Koromosu, Big Sister, is directed by Habi Batahorm and Jim Donovan. So it's actually co-directed by a male-female team. And uh, she's a huge activist. She lives in Quebec. Um, She was a survivor of FGM. And she now uh, responds and supports women from her country and other countries who've experienced um, female genital mutilation and uh, helps them uh, obtain reconstructive surgery uh, and a type of reconstructive surgery that leads to better health, um, reclamation of their bodies, um, uh, sexual pleasure, like all kinds of things. It's a big deal. And, you know, and then interwoven in his story are the perspectives of three survivors. And she um, interviews them. And she, it's just, it's such a joyful, I mean, it's a really hard topic, but it's actually, it gives so much hope and promise and really uh, so much humor and candor by the women in this film. It's just incredible, incredible. 
Well, it's good to hear from the women themselves who've experienced this instead of, you know, outsiders mm-hmm. uh, talking about this issue of mm-hmm. female genital, genital mutilation. The personal is political. There's a short film, a couple of short films that caught my attention. And you have a wealth, as I said, you have a wealth of short films, but uh, The Ghost <clears throat> Under My Bed is one that caught my attention. Tell our listeners about that one. Oh my goodness. It's based on a true story. And that's not in the synopsis, but Sarah Caldwell was a little girl and she, or I mean, it's about her ancestor. And so it was sort of the brink of the U.S. Civil War. And it, what's brilliant about it, it's done in animation, claymation, and it's still horrific. But if it had been like a live action, it would have been really, it would have been a totally different film, I'm sure of it. But it's about an ancestor of hers who her mother and her, and her mother married a plantation owner. And I think it was her great, great grandmother. And she was a little girl at the time. And there was one of the, one of the maids or one of the, the plantation owner's right hand, you know, she basically ran the plantation. This, this African woman didn't want to lose her child because they used to take the children and they would sell them. And she didn't want her child sold. So she hid her in a, in a, in a bedroom in the house that was unoccupied. Well, the master married a woman with this great grandchild, this child and moved to this house and married the man and the, the and the bedroom was to be given to the little white girl and the and what happened was she discovered this other little girl in the room who she thought was a ghost and they became friends and then what happened is the plantation owner discovered the child uh it was a huge upheaval the child was taken away he beat the mother to death um and this and this and this went on and and at the end of the story this little girl is now an old woman and she found her friend she found the little girl uh in new york and and she wanted to know what happened to her and she said that how fondly uh, her grandmother her great grandmother remembered her experience with her great grandmother as a child and talked about the yummy treats she would oh that's the point the 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 she was told by that by the woman who lost her life trying to protect her child from being sold you know well you you feed the ghost if there's a ghost in your room you feed her you give her things and the little girl's constantly putting treats and sandwiches and all kinds of things for the little girl in the room and so the little girl's account of the whole thing was that she was fed very well and she had a friend but the, it's really an interesting it's such a compelling and animation. based on a true story. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. It's up um, for an award. It's up for an award for best animation at the festival this year. Yeah. It's really profound. You know, it it truly is uh, international. There's uh Las Irreverent. The Irreverent Feminist. That's Las- I'll just stick to the uh, <laughs> English. Yeah. 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 That's a really important short uh, documentary. I think it's 12 minutes, 40 seconds. And it is about the risk of violence is about the women who risk violence, just living on the streets of Mexico, going to work, the daily reports of murdered and missing women. Um, it's it, how the warnings, the public warnings facing women traveling in public places on public transport. And it's just incredible um, vulnerability of women living on the streets. So it's it's an important documentary as well. 
there you do have a section excavating truths violence against women um also you know international uh shorts and um i'm sure you have a warning for obviously violence against women women can call and find out you know if they're if they might be impacted um by mm -hmm. that but um it's it's unfortunately a feature of 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 women's lives there's a film called tell me you love me mm -hmm. um which is one of the shorts by Paulette Randall mm -hmm. and this again is based on a, a true story um mm -hmm. can you share about that one with us please mm -hmm. that one is based on, also based on a true story as you said and it's about a brother and a sister who were very close growing up they go their own ways they have their own lives and he isn't fully aware that his sister has been living with a violent husband. So it's domestic violence. She takes to substances to, to get through it. She suffers from, you know, uh, depression. Um, and at the end of it, you know, she, it, anyway, he can't save her basically. Her brother can't save her. And it's, and it's, again, it's kind of reflects the sort of cycle of domestic violence that for a lot of women, it's really hard to leave. Um, for a lot of reasons, some of it's economical, some of it's cultural, some of it's uh, it's it's about the children, um, and so it it reflects that it reflects uh, the the systemic issue of violence against women, and you know I I want to say that you know that sounds pretty bleak as a program, but I have to say there's there are there most of the films um, you know they evoke hope and. Um, I mean, they're informative and enlightening, but they also evoke hope. I mean, we're talking about a lot of subjects that are really heavy and we do have comedies. <laughs> we have, you know, we have a lot of, of, of films and we have late night thrills and chills. Like women are really working in the horror genre thriller space. So we have two nights, Friday night and Saturday night of really fun, crazy late night thrills and chills. And we have lighthearted, you know, feature films. We're closing with a wonderful animated feature called My Love Affair with Marriage. It is so brilliant and bold. It's a feminist feature. It is funny. It is musical. It is, it's great. And then another one called Beyond the Light Barrier, which is about um, uh, South African uh, Elizabeth Clare, who's no longer with us, who uh, had an affair with an alien, Archon, uh, from an advanced human race. And it's fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, I read, I read the synopsis for that. And I'm like, okay, no, she had is, an affair with an alien. Yeah, okay. and, she bore, and she bore a child. It's like insane. No, honestly, it's crazy. I don't really believe in the aliens <laughs> and people on other planets, but apparently they're watching us and they're saying, hey, you guys, your 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 whole environment is affecting all kinds of galaxies up here. Like, get your shit together. Anyway, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating, it, it is really timely. This this uh, documentary is pretty incredible, incredible, Beyond the Light Barrier, and it's on Sunday at 5.30 to 7.30. So, yeah, it's yeah, great. I like that you have the inclusion of the late night thrills and chills. Um, and, you know, they run from 8 to 1130. So, mm. you know, um, for people like me who are a little bit older, it's like we're yeah. not starting at midnight. We can actually, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, have dinner and then go to a series of these short films that, um, mm -hmm. you know, it, 
it's like I like genre films, but I like to see the fact I like that they're short films because mm-hmm. um, you can see so many. And the, there's also a variety um, that and is the, offered. Yeah. And the filmmakers are all coming in. Like this is the first time we've ever had the festival in the summer. And we're really excited because we have so many, we, like we always have the filmmakers travel from across the country and abroad to, to, te- to attend the festival. But this year it's like, there's going to be so many filmmakers at the late night thrills and chills, a filmmaker or two or three at every single program for audience Q and A's which follow each screening. So they're moderated. Um, it's, it's a really fun part of the, the program. What's the one uh, difference that you've noticed now that it's post-pandemic? Well, I, sh- all- I should say post-pandemic, but post, <laughs> post-lockdown, I should say. Well, we're definitely noticing that there uh, people are really eager to come out and participate. And, you know, the only thing we're doing virtually is the director's roundtable, and that is going to be virtual so we can engage everyone because we have 65 or 67 films. Um, but everybody's coming in, you know, it'll be really great to see audiences and the Hot Docs uh, Cinema has has a huge venue, 675 seats. So there's lots of room. They're very mindful of people's comfort level in regards to uh, COVID-19. So I think people will be able to feel safe, uh, hopefully. And that's what we're noticing. We're we're just noticing that a lot of people are coming to the festival. The writers are all coming. The filmmakers are all coming. It's going to be great. And why did you move to the summer? So we are a third-party festival that TIFF, the Lightbox, support. And then they had a renovation and we were informed that due to the renovation, they couldn't have us this year, which our festival is in June, early June. And so we had to scramble really to find another location. And so it's kind of interesting. We're back in the annex and that's where we started. We started the festival at the Bluer Cinema back in 2001 when it was the Bluer Cinema. And so it's it's kind of exciting to be coming home, you know. I'm glad you found a home. I'm glad we did. <laughs> Woo. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for joining me to talk about the Female Eye Film Festival. I remember the name from back in the day, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's only one of me and uh, I can't always hit all the festivals. So I'm very happy that I could showcase your festival um, this time around. 21st. Yeah, Yeah, it's not easy for film festivals to continue, especially Mm -hmm. um, a niche festival like this. Oh, yeah. uh, In terms of getting sponsorship and the money that you need Uh uh, to run a festival. Yeah, it's been a tough one this year. People crawling back from the pandemic and there's a strike in our industry and uh, it's it's a lot of stuff, but you know, we we're pushing forward. We're pushing forward optimistically that we'll have a, we'll have a successful event and hopefully with this and, and really appreciate the support of CIUT and, and, and the likes of you who are supporting the festival, promoting the festival. And uh, I hope to see you there. All of the CIUT have uh, a VIP media pass to the festival. So you'll have all access. And uh, for the listeners, we have a contest on the website and we are giving away all access passes to the festivals and tickets. So you might want to check that out. Just 
hit thefemaleeyefilmfestival.com and it will pop up and you can enter the contest. Leslie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Have a really great day. You too. Thank you.